You are listening to WTUZ Radio Podcast. Welcome to WTUZ Radio Podcast. I am your host, Rhonda. And uh, tonight's podcast... Uh, this shout out to the God of Green. He sent me some information and we were talking back and forth on it and it intrigued me. Uh, he is also the host of the uh, YouTube channel, The Autonomous Party. Uh, they air every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and tomorrow night, Sunday, they are having the guest author, Lee Cumming, who is the author of uh, The Negro Question, Part 6, The 13 Black Colonies, and The Negro Question, Part 4, The Missing Link. And he has several other books as well. So he will be a guest on the Autonomous Party YouTube channel tomorrow. I will, tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, I will drop a link in the description of this video so you all can check that interview out and subscribe to the channel as well. He is doing some great work over there. So uh, he dropped me some information concerning was King James the first, you know, King James Stewart, was he really a Catholic? Okay, so those that know the story of King James getting pretty much kicked off the throne, uh, the whole Cromwell situation, driving out the Protestants, etc., etc., uh, and King James being a uh, supporter of Protestants and not wanting the Catholic Church on his back yada, 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 and wanted England to be able to practice the religion that they wanted to practice and to be from up under the uh, the Catholic Church. So that was interesting when uh, the brothers sent me the information because I sat back and thought, hmm, very well could be possible uh, because when we think of religion today, how it's taught, and um, even back then as well, it is more on a spiritual journey versus for the elite or those that are sitting in those seats of power, religion is not about spirituality and belief. It's really about political power, okay? And then I just started to recall some of the events that was happening in history and how the families uh, cross-married, okay? So meaning enemies, supposedly and allegedly enemies, cross-married. And then I got to thinking about King James himself. And I'm like, hmm... Okay, I'm going to have to use a little deductive reasoning here and do the best research that I can and to come up with my own conclusion. So, uh, you know, the title of this podcast is Was King James a Catholic or 
was he non-religious? So let's get into uh, some of the information. Let me use a little bit of technology here. Alrighty. Okay, so uh, this is the information that uh, Brother God of Green sent me. Uh, this is a blog called uh, Was King James I a Closeted Roman Catholic? So this is a review of King James and Papal Opposition by Stephen A. Costin Sr. Okay, so this particular uh, blog is off of Jesus is Lord. So Jesus-is-Lord. Com. All right, so let's get into it. It is often asserted that King James was a closet Catholic, was he? What does the extant historical record say? These are the questions that Stephen Coston answers in his new work, King James and Papal Opposition. True to form, Mr. Coston appeals to valuable primary sources documentation in order to educate and convince his readers. At the end of his introduction, Mr. Costin states, as the evidence is clear, speaking for itself, I will begin and end by appealing to the evidence. I am not asking you to consider what I think James might have believed. I am not requesting you consider the opinions of what some scholars think James may have held to, I am asking you to consider what James actually believed, wrote, and did. In short, I appeal to the facts of history. Will you listen? In Papal Opposition, Mr. Costin handily proves his thesis. Not only was King James not a Roman Catholic, but he actually opposed the errors of Rome. Hmm. Okay. You know, I'll... We'll roll with what you say, although, you know, there's other accounts of him saying he is a Roman, but uh, okay, we'll, 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 we'll continue. Mr. Costin's selection and arrangement of the king's prolific writings give us a picture of a bold Christian king who fought to keep a bloody papacy off his back while living in his kingdom. Mr. Costin did not stop at King James' writings. He includes those of high-ranking papists who consider King James a heretic king. Complementing the rich, relevant primary source documentation found in papal opposition is Mr. Costin's insightful historical commentary. He does not second-guess King James, but rather helps the reader to put King James' actions and word in words in contact of the political slash religious climate of the time. Okay, so now it's good that they included in here politics and religion because, to be honest, it was more about the politics than religion. Okay, um, so that's good that the author of this particular blog puts, puts that in play. Mr. Coxton's appeal to primary source documentation is refreshing in a time when revisionist historians seek to rewrite history 
based on rumor, speculation, and wishful thinking. Our historians oftentimes plagiarize one another's work, not taking time to go back and do real research. It, seem, it seems Mr. Costins was made for such a time as this. His ability to locate, synthesize, and analyze primary source data is probably the most important aspect of his work. The full title of his work is King James and Papal Opposition or Royal Opposition to Papal Authority. During the reign of King James of Scotland, King James, uh, what is that, the sixth of Scotland and the first of England. Papal Opposition is a short work consisting of 76 pages, but boy, is it power-packed. For those that love the faith, which was once delivered to the saints, this work will probably elicit more than a few hearty amens. Papal Opposition is illustrated with the beautiful artwork by Richard Namir, which transports the reader back to a stylistic 17th century England. Now, I will um, pull this, and I'm, I'm going to review it at a later date and see what uh, Mr. Costin has to say, and if I need to do a follow-up on it, I will. I didn't bring it into play into this because I'm going to use several points of view, and I don't want to make Costin's work the main point of view. So I'm choosing to use this as a summary of his work. The premise, Mr. Coxton gives the overview of papal opposition. This article will be citing three primary categories of works of James to establish my premise, which is that King James was not a Roman Catholic. The first section will be a review of James' personal correspondence the second section will be devoted to a listing of pertinent royal proclamations of James. The third and final segment will be a review of James' political writing, page six of Papal Opposition. This review will not begin to touch on all the writings and compelling points found in Papal Opposition. We'll give some, in, we'll give some highlights and then trust that the interest interested reader will read this well-documented work for himself. Was King James a papist? His majesty King James was not only Protestant, but he actually opposed the Pope and wrote via vehemently against the errors of Roman Catholicism. King James knew well the spiritual and temporal danger of Romanism. His English predecessor, Elizabeth I, was staunchly Protestant and also knew well of Catholic intrigues, murders, and plots. Elizabeth's own predecessor and half-sister was known as Bloody Mary. You know what, now that I think about it, is that where that drink come from? All right, stay focused, Rhonda. Bloody Mary was a Catholic queen determined to restore Romanism to England. In the process, she took out 300 faithful Protestants who refused to bow to the knee of the Pope and his henchmen. In the providence of God, Bloody Mary had no children, hence no heir to the throne. 
what does James, what did King James say about the lore of the lore of Catholic saints? I am loath to believe all the tales of the legend saints concerning the supposed miracles they perform in response to prayers to them. King James called them but tricks. What did King James say about Catholic relics adoring dead saints' body parts? For relics of saints, if I had any such that I were assured were members of their body, I would honorably bury them and not give them the reward of con condemned men's members, which are only ordained to be deprived of burial, but for worshiping either them or images. I must account its damnable idol worship, idolatry. I quarrel the making of image either for public decoration or for men private uses, but that they should be worshipped, be prayed to, or any holiness attributed unto them was never known of the ancients. And the scriptures are so directly, vehemently, and punctually against it as, I wonder what brain of man or suggestion of Satan durst offer it to Christians. But the scripture forbid, forbiddeth to worship the image of anything that God created. The image of God is not only expressly forbidden to be worshipped, but even to be made. The reason given that no eye ever saw God and how can we paint his face? Let them, therefore, that maintain this doctrine answer it to Christ at the latter day when he shall accuse them of idolatry. But Christ's cross must have a particular privilege, say they, and be worshipped. Nay, rather say he, blessed are those that hear the word of God and keep it. So as we are going through what they say that King James said, I want y'all to remember this because we're going to go to several different things, several other sources, and then I'm going to give my opinion based on these sources using my particular logic. Um, so just remember, I want you all to remember what King James is saying. Because, uh, you know, according to this, what we're reading through, he is a Christian, okay? And particularly, he is a Protestant and he is against the Catholic religion and he's they're giving the reasons why he is against it uh, according to them in his own words. Purgatory. As for pur purgatory and all the trash depending there, there upon, it is not worth the, talk the talking of. Uh, Bellarmine, Roman Cardinal, cannot find any ground for, all, for it in all the scriptures. But as for me, I am sure there is a heaven and hell for the elect and re reprobate. Heaven and hell are the revealed to the eternal home of all mankind. Let us endure to win the one and eschew the other. 
the infallibility of the Pope. So I utterly deny that there is an earthly monarch thereof whose word must be law. And see, in my opinion, I'm going to start out early. I think this was really what the issue was between uh, James and the Catholic Church. This was more on a political power side versus religion. But I'll continue. All right, so I utterly deny that there is an earthly monarch thereof whose word must be a law and who cannot err in his sentence by an infallibility, excuse me, of spirit. Christ did not promise before his ascension to leave Peter with them to direct and instruct them in all things, but he promised to send the Holy Ghost until them for the end. But how they are now come to Christ's vicars, nay, gods on earth, triple crowned, king of heaven, earth and hell, judges of all world, and none to and none to judge them, heads of the faith, absolute deciders of all controversies by the infallibility of their spirit, having all power, both spiritual and temporal, in their hands, the high bishops, monarchs of the whole earth, superiors to all emperors and kings, I'm just going to read that again, superiors to all emperors and kings, ye supreme vice gods who rather will or cannot err, how they now come is, say, to top of greatness, I know not, but sure I am, we that are kings have the greatest need to look into. Okay, so now again, this is me and my opinion. Because this is what sparked my interest to do this when I heard about the controversy about him being a, a closeted Catholic. To me, the, the whole battle was not a spiritual one. It was, as it always is, wasn't a religious one. This was about his particular uh, rulership as king having limited power, having to answer to the Catholic Church. All right, but we'll continue. As for me, Paul and Peter, I know, but these men I know not, but I am sure none will condemn for an heretic save such as make the Pope their God and think him such as speaking, such a speaking scripture as they can define heresy no otherwise. Rome shall be the seat of the Antichrist. Rome is the seat of the Antichrist. Okay. So that's interesting because we know today folks still rang true to this statement about uh, Rome being the seat of the Antichrist. Okay, so to be honest, most religions outside of uh, Catholicism feel this way. 
about the Catholic Church. Okay. King James labored to prove the Pope to be the Antichrist out of Scripture, and this opinion no Pope can ever make me recant. Having now made this digression against the Antichrist, which I am sure I can better fasten upon the Pope than uh, Bellarmine, remember he was he was a bishop, the uh, Rome. I'm sorry, Car- Cardinal. I'm sorry, Romanist Cardinal can do in his pretended temporal superiority over kings. Popery is indeed the mystery of inequity. Okay, praying to Mary, chow. He uh, they didn't know. <laughs> He went, he went down the list, honey. And first for the blessed Virgin Mary, I yield her that which the angel Gabriel pronounced of her. I reverence her as the mother of Christ, but I dare not mark her and blasphemy, blasphemy God, praying her to command and control her son, who is her God and her savior, nor yet not I think that she hath no other thing to do in heaven than to hear every idle man's suit and busy herself in their errands while requesting, while commanding her son, while coming down to kiss and make love with priests, and while disputing and brawling with devils. In heaven she is in eternal glory and joy never to be interrupted with any worldly business. And there I leave her with her blessed son and our savior and in her eternal felicity. So in other words, what are y'all doing sitting up on y'all behind worshiping Mary, putting her on a pedestal that she shouldn't be on? Yeah, okay, yeah, I, I know that she, she birthed the Lord I know all of that, but I'm just saying, y'all shouldn't be idol worshiping her. Okay, so that that's interesting. So let's get on the next grievance um, of King James with the Catholic Church: forced celibacy of priests. Child, what he had to say on this? By their fornication is meant both their spiritual fornication of idolatry and also their corporal fornication, which thou the more abound amongst them, as well by reason of their restraint of their churchmen from marriage, as also because of the many orders of idle monastic lives among them, as well for men as women, and continual experiences prove that idleness is ever the greatest spur to lechery. Okay. All right. So he wasn't with that um, celibacy of of priests, which from my understanding, just reading um, various older texts, um, it wasn't always so that priests were celibate because a lot of them had children and all of that jazz. So I I don't know when that it got really, really strict uh, where they had to be celibate. But that's interesting that he was like, nah, I'm not with that. All right, so let's continue. Sacrament of 
confessions to priests, how damnable this doctrine is. <laughs> so he didn't have no more to say on that. Okay, it says, so the Romanist response to King James' comments. King James is no Catholic, neither is he a Christian. Well, well, I'm going to get into that a little more, but let's continue. King James responded by saying he was saved without the aid of Rome and a Catholic. In the true historic sense of the word, Mr. Costins explained that the word Catholic refers to the universal body of believers, not the Romanist perversion. Catholic inquisitioners and Cardinal Bellarmine, the Pope's champion, called King James a heretic king. King James said that since he was never a Catholic, <laughs> he could not be termed a heretic. Child, they was really going at it. Okay, because back then, when these folks were seated in the spot on the throne, uh, the particular church, specifically the Catholic church, always had uh, someone from the church assigned to them. So I'm going to assume it was at the um, level of a cardinal. All right. Okay. And um, what I don't like that's still not brought to the forefront of just how much power these particular churches had on these monarchs, okay? And that's why you would hear stories um, periodically of these kings going up against the church, okay? Because uh, what, Henry Eighth was another one because he wanted to sit up and get his swerve on on a regular basis, uh, getting divorced. He was a serial marriage, married, always trying to get married on a regular basis. And you know the Catholic Church don't believe in divorce. Okay, so that was just one example. But the point I'm trying to make is what is really still not talked about in history is just how powerful the Catholic Church was in these seats of power. And if you go behind the scenes and get the hidden history and shout out to Brother Odell from the UK, we want to get real honest about it. The Catholic Church was seeding these different monarchs. Okay? They really made the decisions who set on the different thrones around the world that they essentially colonized. Um, they gave those particular monarchs the blueprint on how they were going to colonize. And uh, part of that colonization blueprint was to make everyone around the world Christians. Okay, so if we really want to get truthful about it, all religions really roll up to the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church authorized and sanctioned those religions. So as they were going around the world um, colonizing and sending their missionaries 
their missionaries were under various other faiths also. And they were authorized to put people under Christianity. And I have to be careful how I say this for censorship, but even the religion that starts with the J ends with an S, it ultimately rolls up to the Catholic Church, okay? All right, so that is the real hidden information, okay? So even though we are going through this, I'm going, I'm doing this for a couple of folks to just, number one, bring to the forefront of folks that were not familiar with the rumor that King James was really a Catholic, but I also want to bring to folks' attention that uh, this really wasn't about religion. This was more about how much power a king really had, okay? All right, but we're going to continue because uh, I want to get through this source, go through a couple of more sources, and then give my... um my humble opinion. <laughs> All right, so here we go. But wasn't King James a, a, a baptized as a Catholic? Child, let me sip my water. King James' mother, Mary, Queen of Scott, was a well-known papist. Yep. The king never knew his mother. She was arrested when he was one year old and spent 19 years in prison in England under Elizabeth I, where she was finally executed for treason. Because Mary had King James baptized under Romanish rites, Cardinal uh, Bellarmine said, in our supernatural birth and baptism, we are to conceive of a secret and implied oath. Now, child, clutching pearls. Child, I'm going to... Clutch my pearls. When we tell you all about baptism, we told you all you are aligning yourself spiritually. That is a spiritual contract. We told you that. We're consistent with that. So here go Cardinal Bellarmine saying, in our soup, Supernatural birth in baptism. We are to conceive of a secret and implied oath, which we take at our new birth to yield obedience to a spiritual prince, which is Christ's vicar. Now I'm going to pause right there. For those who really don't understand what baptism is, okay? And that does not matter which faith you are getting baptized towards, okay? And as we discussed uh, this last Thursday, a couple of days, well... Yeah, a couple days ago. This is Saturday, right? Yeah, a couple days ago. That, you know, the baptism seals that ritual 
It seals the oath. It seals the contract. So, oh boy, Cardinal busted him out. Like, okay, you want to sit up here and talk about some, you're not Catholic, but you were baptized as a Catholic. Child, let's see what King James had to say. It is to be wondered at whence this fellow had this strange new divinity, which surely was first framed in his own fantastic brain. Else let him make us catalog of his authors that hold and teach that all Christians, whether infants or of age, are by, are by virtue of an oath taken in their baptism, bound to yield absolute obedience to Christ's vicar, the Pope, or baptized in any but in Christ. Child, gentle reader, this is but a small sampling of the quotes you will find in King James and papal opposition, but it should be more than enough for a few, for any objective person to see King James was no papist. So if I'm reading this correct, he, what King James is trying to say, well, listen, I was an infant. I wasn't of age. So how did I have a choice in that matter? Child, we talk about that all the time with these oaths that are being put upon these innocent children. Children getting Christianed or baptized or getting certificates put upon them. Okay, talking in cold, y'all should know what I mean. So King James was like, what, what that got to do with me? I was an infant. So let's see. In spite of this overwhelming evidence, detractors of King James in a last ditch effort appealed to King James' statement. I acknowledge the Roman church to be our mother church. In papal opposition, Mr. Costin put this phrase back in the content context in which it was spoken and then goes on to define the term mother church. Essentially, the Church of England, of which King James was head, came forth from the Church of Rome during the reign of King Henry VIII. Okay, remember, you know King Henry that wanted to keep getting his swerve on on a regular basis through marriage. He went up against the church because he was trying to get a divorce. And they told him, no, I'm going to sit down with it. He, he came up with every excuse in the book for that divorce. And they was pretty. the church was pretty much like, uh, nah, bruh, that's not good enough. So he's like, okay, I got something for y'all. I got something for y'all. You want to play with me? I'll just form my own church. Okay? All right. So now I can't speak on King Henry if he was doing it for power or to get his swerve on to me it was really both but the bottom line as i stated before the catholic church had a lot of power on what went on on these um with these kings okay now if you understand the spiritual connotation with folks being baptized, a.k.a. performing a ritual 
and going into a spiritual contract, which, which ties your spiritual soul to hence that particular system, would it not make sense if you were a king to, that not only do you not want to be physically ruled under this particular entity called, you know, the Catholic Church, but spiritually, you want that power as well. So you want the physical power and you want the spiritual power of having spiritual contracts or spiritual souls tied to your particular entity called the Church of Rome, okay, which became, they said, the Church of England, okay? But by default, folks do have a point. If y'all, if uh, King James, King Henry them was saying that the Church of England is from the Church of Rome, and if the Catholic Church is the Church of Rome, then uh, ain't that really still Catholic? But okay, let's just continue. <laughs> Most of us familiar with the womanizing Henry's spurn request for a divorce. Honey, he was a hot mess. Knocking off his wives and everything. Child, and what woman would continue to line up to get married to him after you know he done not not just divorce. Forget divorce. Literally that he had his wife knocked off. Who would line up to re remarry that fool? No, nah, blood, I'm good on that. Uh, trust me, I, I, I'm good. We can be cool, you know, whatever the case may be. I'm good. But anyway, as a result, he broke with Rome and became head of the Church of England. Hence, the Roman Church was Mother Church of the Church of England, okay? So I find it interesting. I want y'all to also make note of just like the Catholic Church bows down to a woman, hence Mary. It's interesting that Henry made the Church of England the mother church. Hmm, there is an esoteric reason for that. And um, once we get into some more sources, we'll talk about that. Spiritual and political importance of King James' anti-papal stands. James did more to thwart and repeal Jesuit and papal influence upon the Church of England than any other peer of his time, Stephen Coston. King James opposed Romanism on two fronts. First of all, Romanism was and is against the scriptures. The doctrine which is taught in the church of God ought to be taken out of the word of God for controversies in matter of religion. Let the scriptures be the judge. King James, this is coming out of a quote from the book Papal Opposition, page 34. King James considered himself a father to his subjects and he cared about their spiritual health. Mm -hmm. 
Now, remember this. I want y'all to remember all this. <laughs> Not wanting them to go to perdition, riding on their superstitions of Rome. It must be noted that King James was a soul winner. This can be seen in the king's own writings and those of his contemporaries who noted that he attempted to spread his religious religion throughout the realm. Second of all, King James opposed Romanism because it is anti-moniker and pre-pope. Now, this just Rhonda. This was what it was really about. Okay? Because the pope had too much power over his monarchy, he's like, you know what? So that's that's just my opinion, and, and I'll get into it a, a little bit more. During the Dark Ages, when Rome was in its monstrous glory, Papists enforced to the bloodshed of multitudes subjections to the Pope, since their traditions state that the Pope has temporal and spiritual sovereignty over the whole world. Popes deposed kings, took lands, executed uh, Bible believers, and encouraged reconciliation. Even in the time of King James, and took out kings. The most cursory look at history will find Rome at the center of lechery, whoredom, corruption, scandal, intrigues, and taking people out. King James, but out of all of this, and you know, I'm not disagreeing with none of what they done said up in here, okay? But out of all of this, the Pope has temporal and spiritual sovereignty over the whole world. Okay, so as I stated in the beginning, this was really about the Pope, the Catholic Church, controlling the monarchs. So they made the decisions on which houses or which bloodlines were going to rule and within those bloodlines who would seek powers and even down to executing out the the blueprint, the plans for colonizing the world and putting the entire world under the Pope's control, meaning the Pope had temporal and spiritual sovereignty over the whole world. Okay? That's what that was really about. Okay. But we're going to continue. We're going to continue. Because even when um, Henry VIII and King James, Henry VIII forming the Church of um, England, it was still a subsidiary of the Church of Rome, right? It was a subsidiary of the Church of Rome. So it still ultimately meant it rolled up to the Catholic Church. Now, that's just my opinion. And, you know, that was the opinion of um, 
the cardinal dude that was telling King James to go ahead on with that bull mess. <laughs> I don't care what church y'all done stand up and created. You still roll up to Rome, which the Pope is the head of. Okay. So Henry VIII created England, Church of England, to say, look, just, just leave us alone, Pope. Just leave us alone. Now, we didn't set up this entity so we can go on and control our stuff now. Go on, go on and leave us alone and let us do what we're going to do. Okay? But it didn't work like that. All right? But let's keep going. Because again, out of their own mouth, the Church of England was a Roman church. So hence, it was a subsidiary of the Catholic Church. But let's continue. So uh, we talked about uh, the Pope having the spiritual sovereignty over the whole world. Popes uh, to pose king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about that and how they be doing their, their dirt. King James is often criticized for his belief in the divine right of kings, but the critics overlook the importance of his majesty's stand. With respect to the doctrine of the divine right of kings, this doctrine was the principal force restraining the authority of the popes in James' time and thereafter. Without the doctrine of the divine right, Roman Catholicism would have dominated history well beyond its current employment in the Dark Ages. Furthermore, divine right made it possible for the Protestant Reformation in England to take place, mature, and spread to the rest of the globe. Okay, so this is uh, Stephen Costin's personal correspondence. Now, I say again, all religions still roll up to the Catholic Church. So all of this bucking that the kings them did, specifically King Henry VIII and King James. It just allowed, it allowed subsidiaries of the Catholic Church. I'll say that again. Although Henry VIII and King James were opposing the Catholic Church, and Henry VIII set up the uh, Church of England. He still set it up as a Roman Church, so hence that makes it a subsidiary of the Catholic Church. So this protest, i.e., Protestant movement was really just the ushering in to allow other branches of the, of religions to exist but make no mistake about it behind the scenes they ultimately are subsidiaries of the Catholic Roman Church and they roll up to the Catholic Roman Church and they still must perform things in a certain fashion. That's all religions. 
That's the hidden jewels, the hidden history. But if you do a little bit of research and you look into each organized religion, you look at their customs, i.e. their rituals, you look at their coats of arms, their uh, symbols, heck, even look down to the way that the preachers and the uh, the bishops name, and uh, trying to think of the other name. Any heads of those particular religious church, look at the way they dress. You'll see that it's all really the same thing. It's the same thing. But let's continue. James refused to accept or endorse any jurisdictional intrusion into the ancient vested authority of the crown in ecclesiastical matters. Okay. It was James' concerted opinion that the only authority of a king backed by the universal support of fellow Protestant princes could realistically challenge the usurp authority of the Pope. Okay, so again, to me, this was, this was, this, uh, this is what this was all about. It was about the Catholic Church having jurisdiction or authority over a king's rulership. The Pope, the doctrine of the divine right of kings and their supremacy over any Pope was near and dear to the heart of James, as the historical documents reveal. Furthermore, the well-known axiom of James, number bishop, no, no bishop, no king, was similarly expressive of his attachment to royal direction over ministerial matters. Any perceived degradation of this dogma was strenuously opposed by James, right? So that was, again, from Stephen Costell's Papal opposition. Did King James hate and persecute Catholics? Catholics opposed King James' accession to the English throne before he ever wrote one proclamation restricting them. He was a Protestant prince who was enough for assassination. In spite of their numerous errors, King James did not hate them. Even when the Catholic conspirators of the gunpowder plot were found, King James told his people in his speech to Parliament in 1605, for although it cannot be de denied that it, was the, that it was the only blind superstition of their errors in religion that led them to this desperate device, yet does it not follow that all professing that Romans religions were guilty of the same. In spite of their numerous in, intrigues, King James treated them amicably. How many did I honor with knighthood of known and open resicants? How indifferently did I give audience and access to both sides, bestowing equally all favors and, honor, and honors on both professions? How free and continual access had all ranks and degrees of Pappas in my court and company. Okay, because I say you had to do that, King James. But, you know, I'm just going to go on. Okay, I'm going to, you know, let me just shut up and keep reading. And above all, how frankly and freely did I 
how frankly and freely did I free rest cons of their ordinary payments. Besides, it is evidence what straight order was giving out of my own mouth to the judges to spare the execution of all priests, notwithstanding their convictions, joining thereto a gracious proclamation whereby all priests that were at liberty and not taken might go out of the country by such a day, but time and paper will fail me to make enumerations of all the benefits and favors that I bestow in general and in particular upon Pappas, in recounting whereof every scrap of my pen was served but for a blot of the Pope's ingratitude and injustice in meeting with so hard a measure for saying, so as I think I have sufficiently or at least with good reason wiped the tears from the Pope's eyes for complaining upon the persecution who, if he had been but politically wise, although he had no respect to justice and the uh, verity, would have this complaint compliant of his and for the main untruth of any persecution in my time, it can never be proved that any were or are put to death since I came to the crown for cause of conscience, except that now this discharge given by the Pope, let the blood light upon the Pope's head, who is the only cause thereof. So that was a quote from King James. So according to King James, look, I ain't tried to harm none of y'all. Matter of fact, I let uh, got y'all out of some of the payments y'all owe. I didn't put nobody to death unless, you know, your sentence just straight up, you did it. It is what it is. You had to go. Um, So I wasn't persecuting no Catholics, in other words. Mr. Costant notes, James walked a tight line. He had to be fair and show mercy to Roman Catholics on one hand, yet he had to keep them in check and punish the evil they did. Consequently, many Roman Catholics still revile his name to this day, and many would be Protestants chastising him as being soft on Roman Catholics. Now, right here, this right here, in my opinion, this is why I think he played both sides of the middle. Okay? Because I think this move for him denouncing Catholicism had everything to do with, of course, him having more power and say in his rulership as a king. So not having the papist rule over him as much. And it also gave him an opportunity to build a huge supporters that also oppose the Catholic church and to establish their own faith. Okay, so in other words, to get the people behind him. Okay, so he, in my opinion, was still playing both sides of the fence. Okay, so apparently some of the Protestants felt that as well, felt you still let you know, you claim you're not cool with the Catholics, but you still letting them get away with a lot. So a a lot of, it, it appears... Protestants, some Protestants saw through that, all right? Ah, but there is so much more. Papal opposition is such a meaty uh, treaty 
uh, treat, I'm just going to say treat, overflowing with rich quotes from His Majesty King James that I am loath to end this review for inadequacy of treatment. But at last, all is not lost, gentle reader. You may order a copy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, he's he's um, pushing that. I'm going to get the little book. But based on what he showed, I already know what time it is because I pulled a little bit more stuff, of course. So again, this is from um, this is from a blog done Jesus dot is that I'm sorry Jesus dash is dash Lord dot com, and this is was King James the first a closeted Roman Catholic, and this is given a review done uh, by King James based off of a book King James and Papal Opposition by Stephen A. Costin. Okay, so now let's get into King James the first, King James Stewart the first. So uh, let's just jump over to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, so King James the first of England and Scotland. So James, King James, born 1566 in Edinburgh. Uh, Scotland, he died March 25th, 1625 in England. So he was king of Scotland as James VI from 1567 to 1625. And the first Stuart King of England from 1603 to 1625, who styled himself King of Great Britain. James was a strong advocate of royal absolutism and his conflicts with an increasingly self-asserted parliament set the stage for the rebellion against his successor, King Charles I. James was the only son of Mary, Queen of Scott, and her second husband, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. Okay, um, okay, so remember his mom was a starch Catholic, but we'll, we'll keep reading. Eight months after James' birth, his father died when his house was destroyed by an explosion. Child, that's mob style, honey. They stayed taking people out. After her third marriage to James Hepburn, 4th Earl of Bothwell, Mary was defeated by rebel Scottish lords and abdicated the throne. James, one year old, became King of Scotland July 24th, 1567. Mary left the kingdom on May 16, 1568. And never saw her son again. I thought this was so sad. During his uh, minority, James was surrounded by a small band of the great Scottish lords from whom emerged the four successor regions, the Earl of the Earls of Moray, Lennox, Mar, and Morton. Okay, and I hope y'all peeping some of these names. Okay, the names of places. And uh, folks took on surnames and all of that. So I hope y'all are peeping this stuff. 
okay? There did not exist in Scotland the great gulf between rulers and rule that separated the two Tudors and their subjects in England. For nine generations, the Stuarts had, in fact, been nearly... Sorry, let me read that again. For nine generations, the Stuart had, in fact, been merely the ruling family among equals, and James, all his life, retained the feeling for those of great Scottish lords who gained his confidence. Okay, so let me... Okay, wait a minute. I wanted to get to... Oh, this is what I wanted to show y'all. I just want to show y'all the uh, Stuart family tree. Okay, so you can see two houses, the house of Alpine. Okay, so you can see um, the dynasties here. And so uh, the Scottish royal dynasties, okay, all the way through 1625. Right, so you see it starts with Kenneth, and you see it's going all down in Constantine, Donald, Malcolm. Um, okay, and you could just see all of this, how it's going down. Um, oh, I didn't even see this Macbeth up in here. Child, stop playing with me. All right, so just showing you the, uh, the House of Alpin's side, okay, the Scottish side. Okay, and I also want y'all to pay attention to these names, okay? So you should see where some of these surnames come to today, all right? Okay, so then uh, they go William. Okay, I know folks know about King William. Okay, so those that, William is a common surname in the U.S. And, um... That's coming from King William, okay? So any derivative of William is coming from this particular name or king, okay? William, William's son is son of William. Same derivative, okay? Y'all see the Alexandria up in there or Alexander, okay? That's the second, but there's a first up in there, okay? So this remind me of Alexander the Great going back to the Greeks and all of that jazz, right? Y'all see David up in here. Um, that puts me in the mind of the Bible situation, a name up in the Bible, all right? So anyhow, so this is this particular side, all right? You see uh, Robert Bruce and all of that, okay? So this is the first side of the, this is the Scottish side of um, the, the Stuart, dynasty okay all right so they are giving you this from 1842 to 1625 all right so the next side is the house of bruce all right and so you see this is uh starting with robert okay and um okay which is robert the bruce then you see the House of Stuart here. Okay, y'all see Ross? Okay, this Ross name go back 
pretty, pretty far. All right. You remember when, um, you know, shout out again to um, Lee Cummings when he brought out that information linking the um, lineage of uh, Harriet Tubman, who is a Ross, which is ultimately a steward. This is why. Okay. All right. So we go through here. You got Robert the third. <clears throat> That's uh, his particular branch. And then again, I want y'all to pay attention to the surnames. All right. You have uh, Drummond, Fife, Albany. Are y'all getting this? Albany, New York. Buck Han or Bucky Han. Okay, Isles, Lord of the Isles. Hey, I'm sure that's Douglas over there. Douglas. All right. David Duke. So a KKK person. Remember the KKK person named David Duke? Oh, blood. Uh, so you took your name from a black ruling monarch? <laughs> Child, they better go on somewhere with the foolishness. All right. So the first uh, James name used on the steward side. Uh, I'm sorry, in the steward dynasty you see here. Okay. But that was in uh 1400s. All right, and then there's the James the second. Okay, and then you see where France uh, came up into the heritage as well. Okay, Louis the what was that the eleventh, if I'm not mistaken. All right, and you can see how they're marrying across uh, different places. Uh, you have Austria in here. You have France. Uh, there's Geneva. All right, so then here's uh, James III, who succeeded the second. Okay, and you can see uh, he was linked up with uh, Denmark. Okay, and remember when um, in one of the podcasts I was showing you uh, the melanated people uh, in Denmark that held the seat of power? And I'll put pictures again of those uh, European monarchs as bonus material in this particular podcast as well. Okay. All right. So uh, then you get down to um, James the fourth. Okay. So you see here go another James Duke of Ross. Okay. So that Ross. And that steward name go hand in hand. Okay. So this is why anytime, even today, when I personally see, and um, I noticed a gentleman in the comment section on uh, one of the podcasts noted as well. I didn't know what where he was going with it, but he pointed out, uh, yeah, you, you mentioned that somebody was a Ross, and I can't even remember specifically what it was. Uh, are they tied to the stewards? And I told him, you know, I don't know for sure, but very well could have been. 
Um, this was his reasoning for saying it, and that, that is very well taken. Because anytime I see a person with the name of Ross and they are in politics, I automatically think or of some sort of prominence and they are melanated, I automatically think, hmm, are they tied to that steward bloodline? All right. So you can see in this case, um, you know, here go uh, Henry VIII linked up into the situation also. Okay, and then we get down to uh, James V. Okay. Um, and then uh, we get down to the particular King James that we're talking about, which they're calling uh, King James the first. All right. So I just wanted to show you all that to give you an idea of the entire uh, Stuart lineage with both houses, the house of Alpine and the house of Bruce. Okay. So let's get back. All right. So what did he say? Where was we at? Mm, da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was so sad that his mom didn't get to raise her baby. Okay, so um, during his minority, James was surrounded by a small band of great Scottish lords. Okay, so we talked about that. There did not exist in Scotland the great gulf between rulers and rule that separated the Tudors and their subjects in England. For nine generations, the Stuarts had, in fact, been merely the ruling family among many equals, and James all his life retained a feeling for those of the great Scottish lords who gained his confidence. Okay, so I showed you in the family tree the uh, Stuarts' Scottish rulership side, all right? The, youngest, the young king kept fairly isolated but was given a good education until the age of 14. He studied Greek, French, and Latin and made good use of a library of classical and religious writings. And religious writings that his tutors, George Buckingham and Peter Young, assembled for him. James's education aroused him in literary ambitions rarely found in princes, but which also tended to make him a pendant. Okay, and that's this is like the third time that I've uh, read many other accounts of how read well uh, King James I was, that he was well read, okay? So in other words, although a lot of these royals have access to all of this information, to have this great education, Maybe like, oh, yeah, whatever. You know, like most children, it, it, it just doesn't spark their interest. But he was different, okay? And wow, what a great education he got. He got, you know, access. He had access to the true information and the best information in the world, okay? All right, so... Before James was 12, he had taken the government nominally into his own hands. 
when the Earl of Morton was driven from the Regency in 1578. Now, how boss is that? But because he was so well-read, he must have been a heck of a student. A heck of a student to be able to start coming into his own at the age of 12. For several years more, however, James remained the puppet of contending intriguers and faction leaders after falling under the influence of the Duke of Lennox, a Roman Catholic who schemed to win back Scotland for the imprisoned Queen Mary. James was kidnapped by William Ruthven, first Earl of Gowrie in 1583, and was forced to denounce Lennox. The following year, James escaped from his Protestant captors and began to pursue his own policies as king. All right, so y'all get this um, shenanigans that was going on? All right, so he was a young boy. Okay, and the 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 power struggle between the Catholic Church and the monarch was all it goes all the way to back then. Right, so even the Protestants or the protesters had kidnapped him as a child. Okay, but let's keep going. His chief purposes were to escape from subservience to Scottish factions and to establish his claim to succeed the childless Elizabeth I upon the throne of England. Realizing the more was to be gained by cultivating Elizabeth's goodwill than by allying himself with her enemies. James, in 1586-86, to 86, concluded an alliance with England. Thenceforward, in his own unsteady fashion, he remained true to this policy, and even Elizabeth's execution of his mother in 1587 drew from him only formal protest. Okay? So now this is just according to them that he was being strategic. He like, you know what? I'm going to go this route and align with the English side and not align with the Scottish side. Okay. All right. In 1589, James was married to Anne, the daughter of Fred Frederick II of Denmark. Okay, and we showed a picture of Frederick II. I think we showed a picture of Anne, too, um, in that bonus material, uh, both melanated. And, and I'll put, again, I'll put that bonus material uh, in this podcast as well at the end of the um, podcast. Who, in 1594, gave birth to their first son, Prince Henry. James's rule of Scotland was basically successful he was able to play off. He was able to play off Protestant and Roman Catholic factions of Scottish nobles against each other. 
and through a group of commissioners known as the Octavians, 1596-97, he was able to rule Scotland almost as absolutely as Elizabeth I ruled England. So I think that's what it was all about. He was moving strategically. Wasn't about religion for him. He was moving strategically to rule both kingdoms, the Scotland kingdom as well as um, England. The king was convinced. What the king was a convinced Presbyterian, but in 1584 he secured a series of acts that made him the head of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland with the power to appoint the church's bishops. So again, this was a power move. When James at length succeeded to the English throne on the death of Elizabeth I in 1603, he was already, as he told the English par parliament, an old and experienced king, and one with a clearly defined theory of royal government. Unfortunately, neither his experience nor his theory equipped him to solve the new problems facing him, and he lacked the qualities of mind and character to supply the deficiencies. James hardly understood the rights or temper of the English Parliament, and he thus came into conflict with it. He had little contact with the English middle classes, and he suffered from the narrowness of his horizons. His 22-year-long reign over England was to prove almost as unfortunate for the Stuart dynasty as his years before 1603 had been fortunate. Okay, so even with them trying to lighten him up, you could see up under there <laughs> that curly, melanated hair. <laughs> oh. There was admittedly much that was sensible in his policies and the opening years of his reign as king of Great Britain were a time of material prosperity for both England and Scotland. For one thing, he established peace by speedily ending England's war with Spain in 1604, but the true test of his statesmanship lay in the handling of Parliament which was claiming ever wider rights to criticize and shape public policy. Moreover, Parliament's established monopoly of granting taxes made its ascent necessary for improvements of the Crown's finances, which had been seriously undermined by the expense of the long war with Spain. James, who had so successfully divided and corrupted Scottish assemblies never mastered the sub subtler art of managing an English parliament. He kept a few privy consularies in the House of Commons and thus allowed independent members there to seize the initiative. Moreover, his lavish creations of new peers and later in his reign, his subservience to various recently ennobled favorites loosened his hold upon the House of Lords. His fondness for lecturing both Houses of Parliament about his royal prerogatives 
offended them and drew forth such counterclaims as the Apology of the Commons, 1604. Two parliamentary statements used to Tudor dignity, dignity, James Shambling Gate, restless gurility and dribbling mouth ill befitted his exhausted claims to power and privilege. When Parliament refused to grant him a special fund to pay for his extravagances, James placed new customs duties on merchants without Parliament's consent thereby threatening its control of governmental finances. Moreover, by getting the law courts to proclaim these actions as law, 1608, after Parliament had refused to enact them, James struck at the House legislative supremacy. In four years of peace, James practically doubled the debt left by Elizabeth, and it was hardly surprising that when his chief minister, Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, tried in 1610-11 to to exchange the king's feudal revenues for a fixed annual sum from Parliament. The negotiations over this so-called great contract came to nothing. James dissolved Parliament in 1611. Baby, they was was going back and forth. All right, so the abortive great contract and the death of Cecil in 1612 marked the turning point of James' reign. He was never to have another chief minister who was so experienced and so powerful. During the ensuing 10 years, the king summoned only the brief uh, adult parliament Adelaide Parliament of 1614. Deprived of parliamentary grants, the Crown was forced to adopt unpopular expedients such as the sale of monopolies to raise funds. Child, what they sell. And they didn't stole everything anyway, but okay. Oh, they didn't list what they sold. Moreover, during these years, the king succumbed to the influence of the incompetent Robert Carr, Earl of Somerset, Carr was succeeded as the king's favorite by George Villers, first Duke of Buckingham, who showed more ability as chief minister, but was even more hated for his arrogance as his monopoly of royal favor. In his later years, the king's judgment faltered. He embarked on a foreign policy that fused discontent into formidable opposition. The king felt a sympathy which his countrymen found inexplicable for the Spanish ambassador Diego Sarmiento, uh, Count of Gondomar. When Sir Walter Raleigh, who had gone to Guiana in search of gold, came into conflict with the Spaniards, Spaniards, who were at peace with who were then at peace with England Gondomar persuaded James to have Raleigh beheaded woo baby chow clutching my pearls now Raleigh in and I don't know I can't get up in a business cuz child I wasn't there but you know uh Raleigh was also sent over to do the first um uh one of the first colonies 
And uh, that business venture did not go well at all. So I'm wondering if that was just one more uh, layer in the complexity. Like, okay, so you over there not getting along with my boy. Plus, you didn't set up on your tail and you didn't make this um, colony over in the new world. You financially messed that up. You know what? Get them out of here. So I, I'm just throwing that into the mix as well. Child. With Gondomar's encouragement, James developed a plan to marry his second son and heir, Charles, to a Spanish princess, along with a concurrent plan to join with Spain in ooh, mediating the 30-year war in Germany. The plan, though plausible in the abstract, showed an astounding, astonishing disregard for English public opinion, which solidly, solidly supported James' son-in-law, Frederick, the Protestant elector oh, of the Palatinate, whose land were then occupied by Spain. Child, this stuff was a hot mess, baby. When James called a third parliament in 1621 to raise funds for his designs, that body was bitterly criticized of his attempts to ally England with Spain. James, in a fury, tore the record of the offending Protestants from the House of Commons journal and dissolved the parliament. Child. So again... I'm just reading through this to show y'all this was not about no religion. This was all about power moves. Okay? So just based on what we're reading here, I can see why some Protestants that remember all this information would say that in their opinion, King James was really a Catholic. Okay? To me, he was neither, and I'll get to the last journey of that in just a little bit. We're we going to jump to that in a little bit. All right. So um, the, the Duke of Buckingham had, had begun in enmity with Prince Charles, who became their heir when his brother Prince Harry died in 1612. But in the course of time, the two formed an alliance from which the king was quite excluded. James was now aging rapidly, and in the last 18 months of his reign, he, in effect, exercised no power. Charles and Buckingham decided most issues. James died at his uh, favorite country residency. Okay, um, besides the political problems that he bequeathed to his son, Charles, James left a body of writings which... Though of mediocre quality as literature entitled him to a unique place among English kings since the time of Alfred. Chief among those writings are two political treaties, the, the True Law of Free Monarchs, 1598, and Bosclanen Doran, 1599, in which he expounded his own views on the divine rights of kings. Now, that should be interesting. I'm going to take a look at those and see what shakes out with those. The 1660 edition of the political works of James was edited by Charles Howard 
um, McLean, I'm sorry, McClellan in 1918. The Poems of James of Scotland, the second volume, was edited by James Craig in 1955 to 1958. In addition, James famously oversaw a new authorized English translation of the Bible, published in 1611, which became known as the King James Version. Okay, so we do know that, all right? But what is not talked about what he commissioned, okay, so we know he commissioned the Bible, um, he also commissioned something called demonology. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know, Christians. You don't ever want to talk about that King James Stuart. King James the first Stuart commissioned a work called demonology yeah you you want to leave that out okay and see this is why my opinion was king james was not about religious at all religion at all so that whole thing about him being catholic versus protestant nah that was a power move okay Let's just get into a high level and I'll um, make reference in this particular podcast because we did an entire series on demonology. We literally read through that entire body of work. But here, just at a high level, we'll uh, just talk about it. In 1597, King James of Scotland, King James VI of Scotland, published a compendium on witchcraft lore called demonology so now uh, 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 why would a starch christian publish a work on witchcraft hmm it was also published in England in 1603 when James acceded to the English throne. The book asserts James's full belief in magic and witchcraft and aims to both prove the existence of such forces and to lay down what sort of trial and punishment these practices merit. In James's view, death. Okay, so the whole book of demonology is an argument between whether or not the myths of um, the supernatural and with witchcraft are not only true, but it also goes into how those practicing it should be persecuted and put to death. Okay. All right. So it could have very well been giving insight into how they were persecuting what they were calling witches back in the day. 
But even in that work of demonology, they are telling you that the people that were practicing witchcraft were the indigenous people of the particular land. That King James and them were going around stealing and taking and hence instituting colonies. And it also in that work talks about how they were very frightened of the witches, i.e. the women, okay? Uh, so it, it's very, very interesting. So again, in my opinion, King James really wasn't about religion from a Catholic perspective or a uh, Protestant perspective. I do believe based on his education and based on the access of information that he had at his hands, that he absolutely was able to get a hold to the esoteric knowledge. And he was more on that side of the house and uh, used the combination of that as well as uh, some of the other great generals that move strategically, okay? So in my opinion, King James was not religious at all. He was not Catholic or Protestant at all. He didn't hold allegiance to either. That was just a strategy for rulership, okay? All right, so... um. Let me see. Da, 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 da. Let me see. Did we talk about that? Yeah, we did. Um, it says uh, demonology in Macbeth. Many elements of the witchcraft scenes in Macbeth conform to James's idea and belief in witchcraft as expressed in demonology. News from Scotland and his anti-witchcraft legislation. This includes ideas such as the witches vanishing vanishing slash invisible flight, their raising of storms. Yeah, definitely talked about that. Dancing and chanting, uh, sexual acts, their gruesome, potent ingredients, and the presence of animals' familiarities. Oh, all right. Okay, so um, scholars are divided as to whether Shakespeare portrayal of witchcraft panders to, to the king's interest or rather, it is more subversion comment on his involvement with witch hunting, or perhaps a mixture of the two. It seems noteworthy that although the play Macbeth is contaminated with the witchcraft of the wayward sisters, and Macbeth himself is sparred on by their prophecies and the urging of his somewhat witchy wife, Shakespeare places the responsibility for Duncan's taking out on on Macbeth himself, and Macbeth and Macbeth's downfall is a result of his tyranny as king. His greatest error in his dealings with the witches seemed to be his cruel, cruel cruelty and night night being naive with their double speaking prophecy. So that's interesting. Um, I'm not a Shakespeare fan, but I do know the demonology stuff 
now just by the reading of this, but I would have never tied Macbeth, uh, you know, tying into um, demonology. That's interesting. Okay, so it says the bindings, book of, books of this period were usually sold unbound to, for customers to commission their own bindings according to the tape. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm not going to go through that. Okay, so uh, I just wanted to remind people because that's always left out of the equation. When we talk about King James and the Protestants and the whole Catholic, the Catholicism stuff, and everybody gives him credit for commissioning for the Bible to be, quote, quote, rewritten or put together as one book versus just a collection. He gets the credit for all of that. He's known as being a Protestant and being strictly against Catholicism. But yet he also commissioned for demonology, which was all about witchcraft. And the book was literally about an argument about whether or not witchcraft is true. Okay? And as we've gone through a couple of sources, it appears that King James wasn't about him being a Catholic. It wasn't about him being a Protestant. It was all about him maneuvering, playing both sides to rule both kingdoms, Scotland and England, and then as well as to get a lot more power and not be under the control of the Catholic Church. Okay? So in my opinion... King James was not a Catholic. He was not a Protestant. I think he used religion as just an opportunity or a chess piece for rulership. Um, I think that he was uh, well-read, well-versed. I think he studied all religions. I think he studied a lot of the esoteric and more than likely, he was probably non-religion, okay? And if he did have some sort of religion, it would be more on the esoteric side, all right? So now that's just my opinion, of course. I'm far from knowing, far from knowing what the truth really, really was. I wasn't there. I can only read through these accounts. Um, so that's just my two cents. That's what I'm rolling with. But uh, interestingly, it's interesting nonetheless. And again, it, it once uh, makes me question the official narrative that they give us regarding King James and the whole um, being a staunch Protestant, this, that, and the third. So I hope that you all got something out of this. And uh, shout out to the brother uh, God of Green for sending me that question. I uh, truly, truly appreciate it. Uh, thank you all, family, for your support. And if you are not subscribed to us, I highly encourage you to subscribe, like, and share. Uh, this is Rhonda with WTUZ Radio Podcast.
I wish everyone well on this Saturday night. Peace and love, family. What? <laughs>